You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Forty years of this is Emeritus Rex with Rabbi Ruven Yoshua Pupko of Cote St. Luke, Canada. Hi, I'm Avram Kivalevich. Rabbi Pupko, we were uh, both of us sitting here and before we started to record and talking about the incredible, depressing, surreal uh, imagery that uh, showed up on our phone this morning or showed up in our feeds, uh, courtesy of the New York Times. Um, and uh, the images we're talking about is a New York Times um, lengthy article about how Haredim have been affected most recently, but in general by COVID over the last year. Uh, somebody granted them incredible access, as you saw. Um, and I, I think if anything should scare you, <laughs> those images that you can see in the New York Times today and and others of people close to death, people being administered, um, the incredible effect that COVID has on people and to see bodies withering away, suffering, and and to see humanity struggling under it. I, I didn't have to read the text to be scared and to, and to add extra tefillahs. Uh, I don't know. What was your, I don't know if you've read the article. I mean, you're a quicker reader than I am. Um, were you also um, shocked by by seeing that that tableau of tragedy? It listen, the um, you know with, with the uh, the way the New York Times now uh, produces it, uh, it, itself, uh, which gives them the latitude to do video more and in uh, the photography they did, and it was a remarkable piece that uh, really brought home the the isolation, the suffering, the death, the illness, the mourning. Uh, what they did in Israel with, with that, uh, you know, with that compilation of images from Israel, the Hawaii community in Israel was really quite remarkable. I mean, they, they put together something which, you know, no Jewish newspaper ever imagined doing. And, uh, they did so with basic, with real humanity and sensitivity. They deserve a lot of credit. I mean, listen, they, uh, they couldn't restrain themselves from being critical of Haredi behavior, which again is certainly something we've done. But, um, but overwhelmingly, it was a piece about their humanity and about how their, how 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 deep is the pain and the suffering and the and the persistence of the pain and the suffering, and the, and, and the heroism of really of you know when I see that image of you know look I I I consider myself very connected to the Haredi world. There are people who uh, on our platform have been critical of me and um, all our programs of of sort of like dancing at two weddings and having programs uh, embracing the Haredi world. We did a whole um, hespit of Rav Soloveitchik um, and somebody uh, took me to task for, for championing him and not really believing in what he believed in. But I actually do feel an incredible affinity towards th- what they're about and they're learning. I feel that, that this is my people in many ways and watching and seeing those images in the New York Times of the people strapped up, uh, the volunteers. Um, it, and and that I want to tell you is 
is to me what the tragedy it's like one small one part of the tragedy here you know when you is that the overwhelming story is the story you just mentioned of remarkable heroism and and not just heroism persistent heroism day-to-day day-after-day heroism which is exhausting but they've done it they've done it in brooklyn they've done it in Brook and may the numbers of people who have gone i mean superhuman efforts to help other people and that to me is the dominant Haredi story when i mean dominance i mean numerically dominant story but the story that dominates media are the cases of of non-compliance and, and again sometimes flamboyant non-compliance of weddings and funerals and 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 the numbers however of people who have really risen to the challenge right and uh and i hope that's an enduring memory or begins to you know be, at least share the space in people's minds with the non-compliance stories uh the heroism stories have been uh haven't been given the attention they deserve and uh and, and what the creative community has done uh, medically and, uh, and socially and everything else during COVID has been remarkable. And that's what is so infuriating about the non-compliance in some ways, because it's we, the non-compliance camouflages so much of the good. And we've allowed the bad actors to hijack the Jewish narrative, the Jewish narrative around COVID. Yeah, I, I would push back just a little bit on that. And, and that is that the non-compliance, which leads to uh, greater um, uh, instances of COVID, actually highlights the incredible Messiris Nefesh, right? Like, you know, you're right. It's, it, 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 we know the Messiris Nefesh for others is there consistently. You know, uh, I, I've mentioned on, on some of these platforms how my uh, son and my son and daughter-in-law were, were much more... Um, affected and open to Haredi world when they saw Shtisel. And, and, and the aspects of Shtisel that they saw was the Gamachs, the Chasodim, the fact that despite, you know, the, the cute little characters, how much people are beginning real literally give the shirt off your back to really be connected. The 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 sense of Klal Yisrael is so is so strong. Uh, it, it, you know, this idea, and again it is you know, like Raftorsky and others pointed out how sad they were when they see Haredim screaming sneers and throwing rocks. And, and, and that is a, such an ugly side. But the idea of, 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 of coming to help, the amount of Haredim that are in Zaka, right, in terms of the, uh, um, yeah. it, it isn't just I've got to have this mitzvah, like eating matzah, I've got to pick up pieces of, of dead flesh. You know what I'm saying? It isn't just diktuk and mitzvahs. There, there, there is an incredible regesh that's always there, uh, and, and Mesiras Nefesh, as I said, and and that clearly came out in in, in the Times article. And you're right; it's 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 a it's it's such a god darn dash damn it paradox that that the same article that underscores lack of compliance, goof in the lack of compliance, as we'd say in a lumdisha way, you see the response. Uh, I have to say that the image that, the two images that I, I can't get out of my head, first of all, of course, the, um, the the people that are literally rotting away in these um, 
uh, it's almost like a National Geographic article of a third world country when you see the 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 apartments and the hot and the places where the people are dying, but also the, the sort of like at the Levias, you saw that image that came alive of I don't know which person who was who had died, but the crowding around the body, the crowding around the Aron, um, and it, it, I, I couldn't keep my eyes off of it. It was sort of a um, and, uh, you know, in a way, holding on to the vestiges of life, um, mourning the greatness of what humanity was, it, it really is very shocking and, 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 and moving. I don't know. You know, I haven't processed it. You know, I'm having my coffee and my my chocolates are gone. So I had to rely on um, on granola bars. But um I, 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 it still isn't clear in my head. And I think what I was, I was thinking when I was looking at it and I was thinking, I got to speak to, you know, the great Pupko. What I was thinking about was we hate the New York Times in many ways, right? I mean, we, we, we hate its, its, its opinionating. I mean, you, you've been opinionated on this program, but when I used to go to your house, when we were, uh, you know, young men in, in New York City in the, uh, 80s. The New York Times was as important as as Chala and Chulant. Getting the Saturday afternoon Sunday paper was as choshev as as anything. Yeah, and, well, see, I remember when I lived in New York. <laughs> I'll tell you how much the world has changed. I used to go out uh, eleven o'clock at night to the corner of uh, I think it was 79th and Broadway. Wait to the New York Times delivery truck to get the New York Times before anybody else, uh, and to read the next day. You know, the, to get the early edition, and to read. You know, so you read James Reston and A.M. Rosenthal before everybody else, and uh, you know, you, you go to sleep having read the New York Times already. You wake up and you, you you're know. talking about reading the the Sunday New York Times. And even the, the, I, I would do it every night. I would pick it up every night. Is that so? Yeah, I, when I lived on the Upper West Side, I'd pick it up every night early and read it before I went to sleep. And <laughs> and, and today, you know, obviously, you know, there's no early edition anymore, no all night newsstands anymore. You know, that doesn't exist anymore because uh, you just have to turn on the iPad. But, uh, but I'll tell you, one of the things that you know a, a great Talmud Chacham taught me was how to take the New York Times apart. Uh, people that are listening to this that are not of our vintage are going to be very. They're not going to know what we're talking about, but that Sunday bundle, that Sunday, you know, gigantic bundle that you would schlep right. up, there was a way to attack it. Right. And a, very, a very big Tamakocham said to me, the first thing you do is the week in review. Right. The first thing you do is get the week in review. Right. And, and then you. By you, the way, re- what people don't realize is if, when every single day of the week, when you read the New York Times in the morning, you knew what the first three segments were going to be on the CBS Evening News. The New York Times determined what Walter Cronkite and Peter Jennings and Don Chancellor talked about, right? It, it, it determined, Eric Severide, whoever it was in the day, it, you know, the New York Times was, was the paper of record. And it, and, it was, and, it, and it determined the agenda for journalism across, you know, the U.S. It did. But, but, it, but it did something which you can't even find today in any paper, 
which is a description of what occurred. I mean, we saw something similar to this now with the Times timeline about the uh, Capitol assault, which it can't get a can't get enough of. Right. It's right. The, the amount of energies it's put into the exact moment. And and you can see in the graphics at 106, this was happening in 108. This was happening. Right. But but I was thinking about just normal events that occurred, whether it was Bernie, you know, who Bernie gets was shooting on the on right. the subway or exactly when they went into the Challenger, um, when they went into the Challenger uh, module. And what you were what I'm saying is it was a way to get the, the facts of what occurred as right. opposed to when I, this. What I'm saying now, everybody in the world has said now it's mostly opinion. And the assumption is you already know. What happened? We read the New York Times to find out yeah, what happened. Right? What happened? But again, it was also very intelligently written. In other words, too often journalists turn off their brain and they don't take a second to say to themselves, if I'm somebody who doesn't know anything and I'm reading the story for the first time, what questions will I have? The New York Times comprehensiveness guaranteed 99 times out of 100. And any question you had about what happened, not the whys necessarily or, or anything else, but the what, the what was in there. In other words, if you wanted to know the timeline or why this guy was there or whatever, at the time it was comprehensive. Its comprehensiveness was uh, was remarkable. Right. And you're correct. The quality of the prose is what allowed you to read the thing. It wasn't my weekly reader or the New York Post cheesecake. Right. Or no, it was, it you, was, by the way, do you remember the Miami? Um, just to, we we have to throw something puerile in. I remember both of us were were in in Miami together, yeah. and I and, and, and of course we used to get the paper there. I don't know if it was the Sun, but there was definitely the page three was the important was the important there was. <laughs> There was an important picture on page three every single day in I don't the know. Miami. Maybe you were, I wasn't involved in that. You were involved in that. You can't uh, be. All I can tell you is we were waiting to see which which female <laughs> that we might know, perhaps from the community, was on display in page three. You didn't get that in the New York Times. Maybe in the Sunday. Look, we all knew there were people who loved the Sunday paper because of the of the fashion section. And so, for some reason, though, that one was not the fish was not wrapped in the in that the next day. No, for some I'll reason, you went to people's you went into people's bathrooms and, and somehow, for some reason, you saw the fashion section. The, was the, New, York Times, the New York Times today is, is a very different newspaper. It is. First of all, there this boost in subscriptions on digital subscriptions that Trump gave them is unbelievable. The Trump I, era. I mean. I, I, I just read the numbers. I, I hope I'm not forgetting. I think it was around 8 million, which is a remarkable number. I mean, for the first, they get more money now from subscription than they get from advertising. For sure. Right, which is a, a remarkable change. And people don't realize how dramatic a change that is. And people don't remember that when the internet started, you know, newspapers were free and then they had to put up a firewall. And then the Times really, you know, of the first who did that and, and legitimately so. And, 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 and the numbers of people who, who now subscribe to the New York Times is, is remarkable. It is the national newspaper. It, 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 again, and let's remind people that so many papers that you know were considered, you know, like like you can imagine from William Randolph Hearst's era, the grand, they all 
they all those papers folded, right? So right. many of them, they became weeklies. Uh, they had some sort I of online press. daily newspapers have closed in the last 10 years. In the yeah. I mean, yeah, the, you know, print, print newspapers are, you know, are almost a relic. And what the New York Times has done, there's still 800,000 people who get the daily edition, the real one, right? I would get it if you know as as much as when my son comes over and he he would see it he would be disgusted because of his libertarian or republican leanings. Uh, you know, it's still the place, as you say. Especially if you want to find out what happened, you know, the comprehensive stories from China, from Russia. You want to find out what's happening in Europe. You're not going to find that anywhere else. It, it is hard. National coverage is still unmatched. It is hard. Yeah, I, I would say just to 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 put in a, a plug for the other, the other one. I don't know if it's the Avis or you know I'm not sure how you would call it in terms of the metaphor, but the Wall Street Journal had did a has done a pretty good job. Oh, no, as I, listen, well. I read both. I read both the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times, and I think the the uh, edit, the, the opinion page of the Wall Street Journal is is unparalleled. They do a great job. And, 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 they, and they do and they do a good job in terms of the news as well. When when, when I first yes. when I first encountered the Wall Street Journal so many years ago, I, you know, it, it made my head spin because I didn't understand the the financial business world. But they did a great job of really fusing uh, the economic right. world. So if you read the New, if you read the Wall Street Journal for two months straight every single day, its editorial pages and a couple articles on the economy, you really understand things. I, not just better, but in, 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 in also you, you understand a very different perspective. That yeah. means I'll tell you an issue with this week. I mean, uh, you know, you have the storm in Texas and the electrical grid has frozen. You want to get the full story. You're not going to get it in the New York Times. New York Times is a very particular slant on it about climate change. And this is the wave of the future. Right. And this is the- I, I saw this morning even about I lived in Texas and I just saw the headline it was um, ridiculous. Minority was communities affected okay. worse. What, what does that even mean? Can we stop with this already? Right. Every yeah. single story is about. Oh, no, it's, it's a, become a parody of itself. It really has become a parody <laughs> in, in that regard on racial issues. I mean, you're right. I saw that this morning. I was like, <laughs> what? I can't read about a snowstorm without reading about race. Snow is now racist. I mean, I, what is this? So, um, I mean, it is white, but it doesn't mean it's racist <laughs> now. But, you know, you read the, read the Wall Street Journal about what's going on in Texas and the power outages, they'll tell you, explain to you why, you know, about the ridiculous tax credits that fund unrealistic things and renewable energy and why the investment there has been to the detriment of having a, uh, a reliable power grid as it showed in, in California in the summer. And you have the, where the environmental uh, interests, which are linked to some economic interests Sometimes, uh, you know, get projects approved that are to the detriment of uh, of all. And it's again, it's in the Wall Street Journal. You know, it was but it was much better on the Texas snowstorm than the New York Times. And also, you had that kerfuffle from the New York Times with the journalist who was the lead guy on Corona, Doug Douglas O'Neill. McNeil. Yeah, McNeil. McNeil. I mean, Douglas O'Neill. I've read him for forty years. He's been at the Times. I mean, he was everywhere. Remarkable journal, and he was somebody. He was somebody who could really match with with, when he spoke to Fauci, and I listened to it on the daily. um, You're talking about equals. You're talking about some. The guy guy was a bucky, and to go ahead and get rid of him because of something he said on a trip with high school to rely on the report of high school kids. I mean, 
and, and what he used the N word in the context of denouncing the N word, and that too is sanctioned. And he made and he expressed his opinion about you know the the level of racism that remains in America, and he didn't toe the line with you know with what you know uh, the, the what's her name there the one from the sixteen nineteen project Hannah Jones. He didn't go along with her views. I mean, it, it's like Twitter and uh, and Hannah Jones got rid of him. I mean, it, it was it was ridiculous what the Times did. And by the way, the New York Times, what used to be much more Jewish. What I mean by that is, when it was just print, the people who bought it were like, you know, overwhelmingly Jewish. I mean, it was the you know the, the anti-Semites and even Jews were called the Jew York Times, right? It was so dominated by you know the Jewish the oxen, well oxen Sulzberger and right, uh... and, but also. When in the 80s, you had um, the big issue in the New York Times was, oh, my God, you have uh, you, you were looking forward to Sapphire and A.M. Rosenthal. By the way, A.M. Rosenthal, remarkable guy, by the way, Canadian. A.M. Rosenthal, who was the executive <laughs> editor of the New York Times for, for so many years and then retired and became a, a columnist. Here's the thing about that. Here's what people don't appreciate enough is that you didn't know what his political views were until he became a columnist. That means as executive editor, he, he was Switzerland. He was neutral. He became a columnist. You knew where you, you know what he be, he thought. And, and and there were reliable pro-Israel voices there. There were reliable pro-Israel voices. Now, right, you have no reliable pro-Israel voice. You have Brett Stevens, who was exiled from the Wall Street Journal for probably being a little too anti-Trump, although not every columnist in the Wall Street Journal was pro-Trump. He was a little. He was a little too strident for their taste, I guess. He went to the. He went to the New York Times. His column last week on the fellow. That's right. Party, he was. They would not publish right. it. They, they would not publish, publish it. it. Yeah. And, and he and he is pro-Israel, but that's not what dominates his writing. And Brett Stevens is a good guy, very good guy. And David Brooks was allegedly supposed to be a, a conservative, and I don't know what happened to him. And then you have uh, David. And, let's give David Brooks credit for his uh, his books that he wrote. Yeah. But again, he, he, his books wrote very lovingly about the Orthodox community. Yes, yes. he did but a then, very good job. In there. those days, in the eighties, it was all about A.M. Rosenthal and Bill Sapphire versus Tony Lewis and uh, and and others. And, and, and but you had a, a, a passionate center-right pro-Israel voice consistently on the op-ed pages in your time. Was Charlie Crow? Was Charlie Krauthammer in there as well? Did no, Charlie, Charlie Krauthammer was the Washington Post. In Washington Post, yeah. and then you had, um, uh, and, but again, what's changed dramatically is, is, is as you say, it used to be if, if a president lied, right? The president said something that the journalist didn't think was true. You could say they would write, I don't know, uh, President Nixon asserted this, and then you'd say others, you know, this person said this. You know, in other words, you'd let the reader make up their own mind. With Trump. That was that in the minds of liberals that became untenable. You can't have the neutral voice anymore, right? You can't and, have and it hasn't been neutral for Biden either. Right. Look, so, ben, so, Shap ben Shapiro was 100% right. I, I, the, the tone is so vanilla soft on Biden, it, it, it's almost like where listen, is where are the critical gloves? Where okay. are the critical gloves the New York Times used to right. have? Here's the thing I mean, I track this because I read it and it bothers me. There are certain things that they couldn't say while Trump was president that they can now say. In other words, there's a whole article, you heard about a month ago, after Biden became president, a whole thing 
admitting how good the economy was before COVID, which they never admitted during the campaign. Then there was articles about Hunter Biden's, uh, you know, uh, problems, which the media was not just wasn't covered, but was considered an obscene crime to mention, where it's being censored. And now all of a sudden it's a legitimate story and there is a Justice Department investigating it. I mean, uh, well, oh, next one, school, right? Uh, Trump would call for an opening, opening, opening. Now everybody's saying, right? And the, the and the data is clear that Trump was right on schools. The problem with Trump is was is that intelligent things that he was advocating for, he tainted by how he said it and how he presented it. And so now when the Times mentions Trump, they still have to say, right, right. whenever they mention something, when they, even these articles about now we need to open the schools, instead of saying this was something that, that the Trump administration had pushed and, and now appears was correct, they, they, they need to go through all these uh, mental gymnastics, these literary gymnastics to show that Okay, yeah, he was right, but not really right. And he was doing it only because without any data, and he was doing it because he was chest thumping, and everybody went with him instead of really reporting that and he was right. Yes, and I'll tell you something else. The whole who the hero governor is Newsom. I forget, I'm leaving Cuomo out of it for a minute. Newsom, right, shutting down California for longer and earlier than anybody else. The the, the bad governor was DeSantis in Florida, who was reckless and left everything open. At the end of the day. At the end of the day, the data of illness and death between California and Florida, there's no difference. Right. It didn't make a difference. It didn't make a difference. The lockdown didn't make it didn't make it tell you something else, the data that's come out. You know, the teachers unions have been revealed in the US uh, to be not very concerned about children. Uh, they're concerned about teachers. And everyone knows this. Everyone knows this, right? But the Democrats are so beholden to the teachers union that they can't speak the truth. So Biden, who talked about opening the schools during the campaign, all of a sudden is reluctant. Then he determined, what does open mean? Uh, we want to have this percentage of schools that have at least one day. And they already had it. The goal, he said, had already been achieved. He's not willing to pressure the unions. And uh, the data isn't just clear that children need to be in school and that they suffer enormously when they're not in person schools. Not only that, but the data is now clear that Counties and districts and states where the schools were open and the kids were in in person class had less COVID infection amongst kids right. than the kids who stayed home. Because and so the, the whole and thing, the, I mean, the, the scientists were and the doctors have been saying for months. I I was in contact American with American Pediatric Association, the CDC, and, and then you had this Rachel Valensky, who's now the new head of the CDC. A nice Jewish girl used to work at a Jewish summer camp. She said it. And then the White House spokesman is asked about what she said about school. She says, oh, she's just giving her personal opinion. I mean, everyone knows schools have the, the, the other issue where you see the power and the cloud, the destructive cloud of teachers union is uh, as it relates to charter schools. All these, 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 these politicians, whether it was Obama or Elizabeth Warren, all of them used to speak in favor of charter schools. That was one of Elizabeth Warren's big issues 20 years ago until they become part of the Democratic Party establishment, which is has uh, over which the unions have a stranglehold. And now you have kids suffering. I mean, you ask black parents if they want charter schools, right? And then black politicians are forced because of the teachers union to really betray their own communities. 
because black kids more than any other kids could benefit from a better education and from a charter school. As did as did Obama's children, right? Obama's Obama's okay, but they did not go to the charter schools. I mean, it's such a clear issue on on charter schools. So let's get back to the New York Times. The New York Times has you're saying has not. Punched the 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 charter the uh, the teachers unions the way they should right they have not no it's the 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 New York Times in its coverage you're right what you said earlier it's become more opinion than news it is hard to read any article even about a snowstorm in Texas without it being politicized and 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 that's sad but again. If you want comprehensive coverage, especially in international affairs, there's nothing else to read. If you really want to know what's going on, you've got to read the New York Times because no one else is producing that kind of stuff. I mean, the Washington Journal, the Washington Post, to a lesser extent, but the New York Times is is the most comprehensive. I, I think, I don't remember when it was. It might've been in, in the late 80s or 90s. There definitely was that shift um, that anti, we, many people considered anti-Israel. There was like a campaign people should stop their subscription to the New York Times. Right. So even before the internet assumed, and I've heard justifications, excuse me, the justification was that, well, everybody knows the events because they they have their feeds on the internet. What we need to do is provide context. But even before that occurred, there was a consistent, I think it happened during the intifadas. I think the intifadas... I'll tell you, I remember... Listen, there's been a lot of battles with the New York Times over the years. I remember when Thomas Friedman was a journalist before he became a columnist. And Thomas Friedman was the, uh, the the young guy covering Beirut when Israel went in in 82. Okay, yes. And, uh, and it was Friedman, it was David K. Schiffler at the time and others who were covering those things. And um, You're impressing the hell out of me with your bikis on this. This is incredible. No, I only right? have old bikis. You asked me today what's going on, I have no idea. No, no, this is great. This is great. And in 82, they had a front page story, bottom of the fold, 500,000 Lebanese forced out of southern Lebanon, which was a complete fabrication. And the the Jewish community went bananas, you know, with the Israeli incursion. Uh, There have been a lot of problems over the years with the New York Times. But... um, and, and the sovereign, uh, I, the sovereign Shatila, they were they were together with Time Magazine there in terms. Sovereign Shatila was much worse. Time Magazine was much worse. Right. Sovereign Shatila, you know that was that was Shavuos, nineteen eighty one. Uh, it was, and uh, Sovereign Shatila was a nightmare. I mean, it was a nightmare. I mean, you know, and or eighty two. What was it? It was eighty two. I'm sorry, eighty two. Yeah. And um, and Sabra Shatila was uh, was certainly uh, portrayed in an unfavorable way. Uh, and here's the thing about the New York Times, and, and which I say to some of its harshest critics, you're right, they get a lot of stuff, they say a lot of stuff that you don't like. But the truth is, the truth is, if you read the New York Times, I'm talking about Israel coverage. If you read the Israel coverage, and depending who's there, right, it, it, it varies greatly with who's there, whether it's... Uh, you know, whether it's uh, uh, a journalist is covering Clyde Haberman or or, or, or Isabel Kirshner. It depends which journalist is writing. There have been some very problematic people there. Um, but if you read it over time, in other words, you don't just take one article. And if you rely on any one article to tell the whole story, that's not fair. You can't expect a journalist, you know, to mention San Remo and Balfour 
And every time the Arabs said no in every single article they write, you can't. But you can expect that over a span of, you know, a reasonable duration of coverage, they get a balanced story. In other words, they present both sides. That's all you can expect from the newspaper, right? You can't expect them to censor the Palestinian voice, and but you do expect them to tell the truth and to and, and to give voice, uh, you know, to the to the entire spectrum. And over time, the New York Times does that. Generally speaking, um, right now, I would say the biggest problem that right-thinking people, correct-thinking people, should have with the New York Times is its editorial pages are a disaster, and uh, although at times entertaining, uh, but uh, the, the news coverage ha- is 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 no uh, is is at least in American domestic politics is no longer news. It's no longer it is all uh, opinion. No, almost all opinion, and and you don't get to it. But when it comes to international coverage, if you really want to understand what happened in the Italian Parliament in the last two weeks, where, where are you going to read it? This on the New York Times. Yeah, I guess what I I had a subscription for a number of years, uh, till I don't know. My son was very savvy at getting me these, I don't know how these great deals. But I had the Economist. I was reading the Economist well, for a, a number guy. of years, yeah. so and I actually felt I knew more. Right. By reading the Economist, right. I thought I, I and, and they 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 are they are openly anti-Zionist. Uh, they are very very anti you you and, and they wear it on their sleeves, so you don't no, have no, any. But you got to give them credit. You have to give them credit for one thing. They've always been anti. Right. Words, their anti-Zionism is not since Shabbat Shatila. It's from the 1930s. Yes. Yeah. Yes. They're, I mean, at least their anti-Zionism has a pedigree. And and I I think there's something to be said by the pithy, uh, uh, tongue-in-cheek comments. I I actually, uh, you know, sometimes I felt the prose was too florid in the New York Times, too... and, and I, I have, I almost had a sense that it was written by some young Turk who, uh, you know, had gotten A's in uh, Sarah Lawrence College or wherever right. she was, and now she was getting her chance to spread her wings in, 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 in and to write. Whereas in the Economist, I feel what you had was really, you know, it's the type of person I'd like to really schmooze with, like right? somebody who was sharp to the point, who could, who could. It, 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 and they were able to put it in a much more concise fashion. Um, I, 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 listen, if, if a guy who learns in Kyle says to me, Rabbi, I want to spend one week learning what's going on in the world, I would tell them to read The Economist. But if I have one hour a week to do that, you know, read, read The Economist, you'll be in much better shape. You'll have a comprehensive view. And, 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 and e- e- even, the, even the science and arts uh, uh, section. I, I can't disagree with that. But uh, for instance, what's the most egregious thing the New York Times did in the last year vis-a-vis Israel? What's the worst thing they did? I'll tell you what they did. They had this Halalia young journalist who wrote an article about how politicians uh, around the world are exploiting COVID to take more power. Right. So they talked about Urba, uh, you know, uh, what the, the, the fellow in, in, in uh, Orban in, uh, in Hungary, they talked about the Poland. And their third example is Bibi Netanyahu. Because what did he do during COVID? He asked for his trial to be delayed until a thing, I mean, a minor thing. They use that as an example of a despot who's exploiting COVID to diminish democracy. I mean, I mean, that was insane. That was insane. And, um, and, and especially since, you know, one of the other things, 
you know, the New York, this article today, this mea culpa that we read today about we're not uh, vaccinating enough, they should be pointing to Israel and saying, why can't we do that? Why can't we get 30% and 35%? Whatever you want to say, Ben Netanyahu, let's give him credit for, for getting, you know, Baruch Hashem, so many people vaccinated. Listen, the failure in Israel, the failures during COVID in Israel have to do with the, unfortunately, with, with the Haredi community, traffic. I mean, if you look at the COVID infection rate, the Arab community and the Haredi community, where it happened. A lot of it has to do with lifestyle, but a lot of it has to do with non-compliance. And, uh, and that was tragic. And, but uh, the overwhelming story in Israel was a remarkable success. Remarkable success. I mean, Israel's number one. I mean, you think it's definitely fair, uh, Rabbi Pupko, to expose Netanyahu. I mean, he clearly is. I mean, as the longer he stays in power, the more um, skeletons and other, you know, grimy other things that come up. I mean, one, I what's remember her- uh, two years ago, I was sitting in Israel with Amos Harel, who was the, the you know, the, the defense, uh, the uh, the military journalist in the Haaretz, who's, who scathingly attacks BB everywhere. I mean, Haaretz has very little to say about it. Right, and I'm sitting with him, a few other people, and he talked about how terrible, 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 terrible. And then it finally he says at the end, he says, and I'll tell you the truth. If there's, you know, the classic 2 a.m. phone call, the 2 a.m. phone call, right? The classic crisis scenario. He says, I can't think of anybody else I trust. <laughs> so, yeah. So, yeah. Okay. You're so, as long as BB and you're, you know, listen, so much of what's, of BB's, of BB's problem. So many of his problems, I should say. So many of Bibi's problems have to do with the choices of the electorate. And, and, that, and nobody says this, okay? In other words, the Israeli electorate persists in voting in such a way that no one will ever have a majority in the Knesset. No one party has ever had or will ever have. And therefore, by the, by the choices the Israeli electorate chooses to make, they guarantee that there will be a need for coalitions and in an ugly deal making between different parties. They guarantee the Israeli electorate is to blame and the system is to blame. Not the not Bibi. Bibi's living in a world that other people created. And they insist on saying, you know, I, I listen, this goes back years. In nineteen in, in the early nineties, Shabir was prime minister. Okay. George Bush the first was president. This is how long old this goes back. And what happened? The right wing got so angry at Shamir. Why? Because Shamir betrayed the right when he went to the Madrid conference that George Bush the first had called in the aftermath of the first Gulf War, right? To have peace. The PLO wasn't allowed to have a seat at the table, but they were allowed to be present behind the table. It was a complicated formula to satisfy everybody. All right. The right wing goes crazy. So what happens? The right wing decides three right wing parties run against uh, in the next election. In, in 92, I think it was. And you had Gula Cohen, uh, Yehuda Levinger, and one other party, which I'll think of in a minute. Three right wing parties. None of those right wing parties passed the threshold to get into the Knesset. Guaranteeing wasted votes on the right. And what happened because of that? Because of those few seats that they insisted on wasting by having separate parties because Yitzhak Shamir wasn't right-wing enough. Okay, what happened? Robin got elected. And what happened? You had Oslo. Okay, so 
the right wing, and, they, and they're doing the same. They, so when BB goes ahead and takes these unsavory characters like Ben Veer and pushes them into a shitter with, with another right wing party, just so votes don't get wasted. Why does he have to do that? He has to do that because the right in Israel refuses to give their guy a mandate. And, and, if, and, and if the right wing parties would coalesce and they'd all say, you know, let's leave this aside and let's be a mensch and let's give BB a free hand or at least a coalition of just two parties, you better three or four or six parties, then you'd have a stable government. But the, the Israeli electorate persists so, uh, in voting in a way which guarantees insanity. Yeah, so I, I think this, you know, this, I think we've probably opened up a, a complete different uh, can of worms, of 120 wiggly worms. Which is this this Narishkeit of the parliamentary system with the Anshe Knesset Agdela somehow being the the ultimate uh, image of 120 voices? I mean, it's 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 so unwieldy. I mean, you have a, a 3.25 percent threshold to get into the Knesset. Uh, you have not a single electoral district. There are no ridings, no precincts. The whole country is one district. There's only one other country in the world with this system. It's Iceland, which has 350,000 people, two-thirds of whom live in one city. So you have, uh, basically, the parliament is a city council. And then you have that same system in Israel. And what that what people don't realize about the system is, not only does it guarantee divisiveness, but it also guarantees corruption. Because in the normal so, situation, where you have, let's say, two or three large parties, right? So what happens? So and when you have electoral district. So what happens? Uh, Likud has to run candidates in Tel Aviv. Labor or whoever's on the left, blue and white or whoever did, has to run candidates in Jerusalem. That has a moderating effect, right? But no, but when you only have one district, the whole country's one district, what happens? Likud picks up its voters from Nariya Teilat, wherever they may be. And therefore, you don't have to moderate. You just have to find your like-minded constituents. You don't have to run candidates in left-wing areas. You just have to run candidates in the country, right? Uh, the left-wing party don't have to run candidates in Gula or Bayatagan because they just have to cherry-pick their constituents throughout the country. So there's no moderating. And, and then uh, it's all about not me running as a candidate for the good in, uh, in, 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 uh, in, in whatever city in Taifa. It's about me making deals to get higher up on the list. So it, 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 it's a recipe for extremism, divisiveness, and corruption, because it's all about, it's not about me winning voters on the ground, it's about me winning a place on a list with party hats. So, you know, so, so you have a system that, that builds in prisons in Canada. And, and, and I think, it, you know, it probably leads to a lot of um, good people who are, are moved by the urgency of what politics is supposed to be of making the, the, the world better, making their community better, uh, resigning in disgust. Right, because, by, the way, by the way, for Americans, this is hard to understand because you don't have a parliament in Canada. I'll give you the, what's the parliamentary system in Canada? It's called first past the post. What's first past the post? The country is divided up into riding, or what you call precincts these days. Riding. And the only way you get into parliament is if you win the plurality or majority of your own writing. Okay. Which means the following. If I run a political party in Canada that, I don't know, wants to liberalize whatever, 
that's in favor of that every teenager has to smoke marijuana. That's your the law you have to smoke marijuana. Okay. And I run a party in Canada and I win 30% of every riding in the country from Vancouver to Newfoundland. How many people do I end up in parliament representing me? Even though I got 30% of everyone in the country, I end up with zero members of parliament, right? Because I have to win the- The, the polarities, you have to have a polarity. So. You have to win the polarity and majority in a riding. So what does that do? So what's, what's, what's the positive part of the Canadian system? Very stable, right? You only have you know three, four big parties finished. Uh, in Israel, if I ran a party like that that got 20% of the vote, I'd have 20% of the Knesset. Political scientists call Israel not a democracy, but a hyper-democracy, because every other democracy with the U.S. with electoral college, or Canada with first-past-the-post, or European countries that have higher thresholds and writings and precincts, you have built-in ways to create stability, because the downside of democracy is instability. Israel is a hyper-democracy. They don't have any of the mechanisms that other Western democracies use to enhance the possibility of a stable government. It's 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 a it's a perfect the Knesset is almost a perfect photograph of the country. It's like you turn and, and it's and it's a recipe for instability, which is why we have fourth the fourth election in two years coming up in March. And it also, of course, supplies a lot of uh, um, I guess you know the footage of the uh, interactions in the Knesset are quite humorous and and really reflective of the divisions which 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 I guess do, do not help, especially during a COVID situation. I mean, the type Imagine of- Imagine a world where blue and white, Yesha Tid and even a Victor Lieberman have to run candidates in Jerusalem. Of course, it's going to have a moderating influence because you have to win in places. So it moderates, you know, the worst tendencies. And, uh, and right now you don't have to do that. You have the luxury of able to go around the country to find your voters. And this way also, the other downside is no one in Israel can point to anyone in Knesset and say, that's my guy. That's the guy representing me. No one can do that because there's not a single representative from any geographic area. No one in the neighborhood of Gula can say, oh, I've got to call my, my member of parliament. You don't have a member of parliament. Which, which, I think, which I think creates a sense of alienation and yeah. powerlessness. Which, which is a very bad thing for people to who are living a country to believe that they're, you know, the political world. I mean, you can understand now why the Briskers and others say the hell with it. Let's stay away from this whole thing because it it yeah. really is a, a a a complicated and ugly labyrinth. I think. I mean, on the other hand, on the other hand, the advantage to Israel, there is an advantage to Israel that we shouldn't discount. Is that, in other words. I don't want to use the, the word extremist, but I don't have a better word. In the U.S., right, extremists are left out. Because you have to be moderate, basically, with some exceptions, whether it's Rosh Hawley or Ilhan Omar. Generally, extremists can't make it because you have two big parties. They both have to be, at least they used to have to be, kind of like big tents a little bit. Today, I know it's a little bit different, and maybe a lot different. So the more extreme elements are left out. And a lot of people feel that way. Or I, not even extreme, but iconoclastic views are left out. But in Israel, the advantage is that that although I can't say that's my member of parliament, because there's such a wide spectrum of parties, everybody can say, oh, those guys are like me. You know, in other words, no one's, very few are filled completely left out, right? The 
ultra-Orthodox and say, oh, there's a party like me, right? You know, the, the, the uh, anti-religious right-wing guy can look at that. The anti, you know, the religious left-wing guy can look there. You know, there's, there's enough variety there that it's hard to feel that there's no one in parliament that, that doesn't reflect your views, even if he's not your guy. So there are some advantages to it. And, and, and in the country as divided on, on basic core issues, as, as Israel, it's maybe important to make sure that everybody's inside the building, whether they're, you know, an Arab communist or a, uh, or a Haredi from Ayashara. Yeah, well, again, I think we've sort of uh, fused, I guess, two little points here, and, and both of them are obviously things that uh, were, as we say in the common parlance of today, clearly in your wheelhouse, Rabbi, and uh, uh, yeah, well, let's uh, let's table these events here. Let's put the gavel down, uh, close this section, this uh, uh, meeting of parliament, so to so to speak. And uh, I guess we'll try to pick things up next week. Yeah, as we head Kareen into Purim, and let's talk about some uh, some uh, revelry and and simcha, and um, yeah, you know. And maybe we'll even have an off reference to uh, you, yours and mine, Purim's uh, song that we sang so many years ago <laughs> from the Jay Giles band. And, you know, and our love will always, our love is never going to run cold. Take care. Be well. <laughs> Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. 